Welcome to another episode of Chefs and Guests on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by sommelier Daniel Souter. He's also the co-owner of Pleasantry, which is down in Cincinnati in the Over the Rhine neighborhood. Uh, it's an awesome restaurant. If you haven't been, it's one of my favorites in Cincinnati. Dan is the co-owner and the sommelier. He's really big into natural wine, which I admittedly don't know too much about. So we get into that on the episode kind of go through his career of how he became a sommelier and also venturing into restaurant ownership. You know, I've had the opportunity to eat originally at Pleasantry. They did a home and home dinner series with Commune up here in Columbus. So the chef down there came up, they cooked kind of a collaboration tasty menu. I think it's like six courses. Jacob Inscore, who's been on this podcast at the time, he went down there to Cincinnati and they did kind of the same thing there too. We didn't go to that one in Cincinnati, but we went to the one here in Commune. So that was my first experience with Pleasantry. And the two restaurants, Commune and Pleasantry, are similar. I mean, Pleasantry is not a vegetarian, vegan restaurant, but they just have similar vibes. They're just fun. They're just fun places to eat. Some of my favorite restaurants, both those. It's really awesome to have Dan on the podcast, you know, not just because of the natural wine element, but also because of Cincinnati. I'm such a big fan of the food scene in Cincinnati. I think it's an awesome food scene down there. It's super compact. Columbus is a bit more spread out. Like if you go to Nashville, this food scene is really spread out. And there's different neighborhoods that have great restaurants, but you're constantly driving. You're never like downtown in a central location. Columbus is kind of the same where you're kind of having to drive to different neighborhoods. You know, like Chapman's is in German Village and Veritas is downtown in kind of the business district. And you have places in Short North, but then you can go all the way out to Dublin and and things like that. Cincinnati is like an old school city where it's all compact. And so it's everything's in the OTR or like the Walnut Hills area or kind of down by the banks where the stadiums are. Those are your three main spots. And then there's some places that are scattered around too as well, maybe over by the mall or whatever. You can drive to a few different places. Every city has that. But for the most part, like you can walk through the OTR and just pop into a random restaurant and have a fantastic meal. And that's kind of the cool thing about Cincinnati. They also have a really good ethnic food scene too, just like we do here in Columbus. Um, I think that part kind of gets overlooked with Cincinnati as well. So it was really awesome to just talk to somebody who's been plugged into the Cincinnati food scene for a while with the restaurant. You know, they opened a few years ago and different challenges they've gone through with opening and construction delays with all the buildings in Cincinnati being historical pretty much, especially in the OTR. Going through that process, uh, we talk about COVID. There were kind of one of the few restaurants that COVID was they were able to navigate it pretty well. And like, they didn't really have too much of a drop off. They actually probably maybe had a little uptick in business um, because of the carryout that they were able to kind of switch to. So we get into that stuff they did for the hospitals and stuff too, as well. Upcoming projects. Uh, he's working on opening a natural wine shop called Iris Reed, which is named after his kids. So that's going to be opening in 2022. So we touch on that a little bit, but make sure to follow them on Instagram. You can follow him at Souter B. It's at S-O-U-D-E-R-D-B. Also at Pleasantry O-T-R is the restaurant. And then at Iris Reed underscore wine is going to be the wine shop. So make sure to give them a follow. If you haven't been to Cincinnati or, or you have, but you just haven't been to Pleasantry, make sure to pop in there. The food's awesome. It's a small restaurant. Gives you this kind of tight vibe, but it's really well done. It's just an awesome experience. So I can't recommend it enough to anybody who's venturing down to Cincinnati or passing through or anything like that. The food's awesome. So check them out. Make sure to follow us on Instagram too, at SpoonMob. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. Past episodes of the podcast, all that stuff too as well. Make sure to give us a follow, whatever platform you use for podcasts. Uh, most of them are subscriber, follower, or whatever. But without further delay, here's my conversation with sommelier Dan Souter, uh, also the co-owner of Pleasantry in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
thanks again for coming on the podcast. Uh, always appreciative of anybody who can take some time out of one of their off days to come on the podcast. I know everybody's really busy with restaurants being open, staffing shortages, all that stuff. But I want to get to kind of all the stuff you are doing and got some stuff in the works too as well. But before we get there, start where we start with everybody all the way back at the beginning. How did you first get started with not just wine, but also restaurants. I mean, you're a restaurant owner and a sommelier. Did you start working in restaurants just like high school as just your first job? Or how did all that materialize? I worked restaurant kitchen jobs, uh, summers in college, and that was really enjoyable for the time. And then I bartended in college. So that was kind of, uh, you know, my first kind of intro to the front of house side of things. Um, college bar so very much kind of just slinging drinks um and all that but you know the pace and and kind of the personal aspect of it is there um really got started kind of professionally focusing on restaurants um i left college and had an idea to be a professional poker player and i did that for a while and it was going really well and then it went really bad so uh so i needed a job i needed cash quickly. So, you know, just kind of got back into restaurants, got back or just jumped into to what I knew, you know, serving tables, things like that. And then it just kind of quickly became, you know, worked my way kind of quickly up into management with, with a restaurant group and yeah, just kind of got hooked. And then that was it. And that was, you know, 15, 14, 15 years ago. So you went to Miami of Ohio, right? I did. Yeah. You're originally from Ohio too, right? Kind of born, raised, all that stuff. Yeah, from Cincinnati. So when you went to college, what were you kind of going for? Since restaurants obviously weren't on your radar at the time. Yeah, yeah. my major was economics. Um, business kind of always had uh, picked a little bit of my interest. But I mean, to be really honest, I'm, I, I always did well in school. And then I don't know, something about college just kind of became disinterested in not necessarily what I was learning, just didn't really know what it would lead to. I didn't have a, I'm going to school to be this when I leave, you know, never had that, um, you know, had some definite motivation issues in college. So just a, a whole confluence of things. Um, I got really sick a couple of times and that, you know, forced me to fall behind and drop classes. And but yeah, just never, never had my full focus to be honest. So, so yeah, it was economics was my major. And it's, uh, that's still definitely something that I have an interest in the way businesses and especially kind of markets work, but, uh, yeah, not really related necessarily to, uh, restaurants or anything other than I obviously have a, an interest in the business side of a restaurant as well. When you first got into poker, was that during like the heyday, kind of like the rage of it coming up on TV and everything? Yeah, I mean, it kind of started with Rounders, which I think came out in 96 or 97. And then when ESPN started showing uh, the World Series of Poker, um, that was kind of, you know, I was 18, 19, 20 years old. It was college and ESPN was on all the time in every room of every house we lived in. And it was just on. So, yeah, so that really kind of kickstarted that for me. Were you mostly doing it like online or did you go out to Vegas or... You know, at the time I did, I did play online for sure. Not really seriously. It was still a little sketchy as far as withdrawing money from those sites at the time. Uh, but no, I played mostly live at uh, just a, a local casino here in Cincinnati. 
Did you ever consider going out to Vegas and entering the World Series? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had all these dreams. I had all these thoughts and dreams that just never came to fruition. Do you still play at all, or did you just kind of cold turkey it? Uh, no. Uh, yeah, I can't. I'll play every once in a while. Uh, I was in Vegas a week, uh, two weeks ago, actually. I stopped there on the way out to California and spent a day playing poker, but I don't go anywhere around here to play. It's something that I just, it's not that I would fall back into it because I have a lot of other life commitments. Just taking, you know, if I go to play poker, I want to play for eight to 10 hours and I just don't really have that time out of a day that I can do it. I play golf in like high school and, you know, you play all your sports and stuff, but once like after college, it's just like, I don't want to be on a golf course for four hours, like Saturday morning, like 6, 7 a.m. And so it was just kind of like done. That's interesting. I've definitely taken on golf the last time. I mean, I played a little bit here and there as a kid and then didn't really play for probably 10 years. And then just over the last five or six years, I've really played a lot. I'm actually playing later this afternoon. So that is definitely something for me that is, you know, I can not look at my phone for four hours. I can be outside i can you know it's definitely a thing that you know with me and my friends are all you know busy with life and family something we can do that it's us you know we have time to just kind of be together but yeah i'm not i'm not great but it's definitely uh something that maybe has replaced a little bit of other things so I think it depends too on like like how competitive kind of in a way you are too. Like there's a level of golf where it's like I enjoy being outside, I enjoy being on the golf course, like you're around friends and stuff like you said. But then there's also that other side of it where people get like they're part of a country club and like they're playing in like scrambles and they're playing in, you know, the country club outings and stuff and they're trying to like win it and be like a scratch golfer and super competitive and it's when you get like when you start messing around with that stuff, I don't know, it's just like, you know, after you kind of decide to kind of pursue other things aside from poker and, and you get kind of back into the restaurants, you know, I think you wound up, you know, being like an assistant manager at uh, Enoteca Amelia. Yeah. So that was kind of my first job where uh, it was a little bit more of an elevated restaurant with a focused wine program. And it was, I started there just on uh, just coming off of really committing myself to having a specialization in wine. You know, I always came to enjoy kind of the, just the systems within a restaurant and, you know, setting those up for success and an interest in both front of the house and back of the house just was in front of the house. You know, I love food just as much as I do other parts of the industry of a restaurant. And then went, yeah, in Oteca Amelia, I had just taken my, just got my level one through the court. So it was really kind of just exploring kind of the entry part of of wine and all it had to entail. So, um, and I wanted to have a specialization, you know, I wanted to kind of have something that would distinguish myself. And at the time, I guess that would have been 2010 or 11, you know, it wasn't the wine boom. Psalm hadn't come out yet, you know, all those things. So it was, it was, uh, new to me. And so, yeah, so that was when I first worked in a place that had, you know, a, a focused wine program and where I was really starting to get serious about wine. Was it just being around, being involved in like that Focus Wine program that really piqued your interest? Or was it before that? Was there somebody and you just kind of were like, oh, that's really interesting. And you kind of go down the rabbit hole? Yeah, to be honest, more the latter. Um, I was working with uh, a girl I was working with was going through culinary school and she took a beverage management 
class within that. And part of it was you could take your level one afterwards. And, uh, you know, there was a study program for that and you could take it and she was talking about it. And I thought, Oh, hmm. yeah. So it wasn't necessarily, uh, my at least entry into wine fully was more a, this is something that I think I could do to have a specialization. And then after getting into it, I kind of fell into it and fell down the rabbit hole as opposed to tasted a wine that just totally blew my mind. And I just had to, you know, devour all the information I could after that. That was not, I guess I, I approached it at first as something that I could differentiate myself on or, um, you know, get a little bit of a leg up on my peers at the time. And then it quickly kind of spiraled into a full-on love and obsession with it. I don't know if obsession is the right word, but a full-on just love and appreciation of it. So with the level one, that's the intro, right? Yes. That's like a two-day thing and you take it. Yeah, it's uh, it's all theory. It's all book knowledge. Honestly, I signed up after I kind of decided I was going to do it. I looked on their website and there was one in Chicago in about five weeks from when I was looking, but it was waitlisted. So I got on the waitlist, you know, and put it in the back of my mind. And then within a week, I guess they had taken me off the waitlist because somebody had canceled and the way you kind of had to sign up was, you know, you give your credit card information when you're put on the wait list. So as soon as you're entered, they just charge you. So I'm like, well, I guess I'm doing this. Um, and it was four weeks of just kind of immersed within the theory part of it um, to take that. You know, I think level one, anybody can do it. It's anybody can do any of it, but uh, level one is really, it's just book knowledge. So it's how diligent you want to be. Again, I studied, I didn't know anything about wine leading up to that. So it was a, a four week, really hard kind of crash course in it. Um, I had all her study materials that she helped me with. And yeah, went up to Chicago, did the two days. And it's a first day is kind of a, a brief overview of everything. Second day is a little bit more review and then you, then you take the test. So there's no service, there's no tasting, although you do go through kind of how they want you to do the deductive tasting method for future uh, levels. So you passed that. When did you decide that you wanted to do the certified? Right then. Uh, you know, I was I was hooked. You know, this was this was for me. This was fun. This was something that, you know, a lot of my peers weren't doing. So um, and yet just, you know, grabbed all the books I could and, you know, started reading blogs and, and things like that. Um, and then, you know, obviously working with it. So uh, but I would always look on and say, all right, I'm going to take it now. All right, I'm going to take it at this time and always came up with a life event that wouldn't allow me in my head to kind of properly prepare for it. So kept pushing and kept pushing. It was kind of a twofold thing where I finally, finally decided, all right, you're signing up and you're going to take it. Um, one, there's a five-year limit on when you uh, have to take it or else you have to retake your level one or get a master sound to sign off and give you permission to take the, the certified, the level two. Um, so that my five years had run up. And second, I finally joined a tasting group. You know, I think without that, I know without that, I never would have been diligent enough on my own to taste and to talk through everything and to have people, you know, peers that were doing it with me and we could kind of talk things through and do all that. So, so yeah, so I, 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 I took it passed in Raleigh, North Carolina in 2013 or so, maybe. 2014, something like that. 
What was the most challenging part of the certified exam for you? Uh, the theory part. Um, I had just about a month prior had just opened a restaurant and was running the front of the house of a restaurant and a wine program. And so I had all the things that were going on with a, opening a new restaurant on top of, you know, having to dedicate myself time to study. And, you know, with the tasting group, the the tasting and service, we practiced service during that I was very comfortable with, but I knew going into it that theory would be the thing that I definitely could have put more time in and what I was least confident of the three aspects of it going into the test, but confident enough that I knew enough that I could pass. And you never went for advanced, right? You ended at certified. What led to that decision? Before I took the uh, certified, I had gotten this opportunity at 15 wine bar to work there and kind of uh, be the wine buyer, the wine manager. And that was uh, my first full experience within the creating a wine program. And I always felt that too many programs, too many lists were sterile and it was all relatively the same. And, you know, a lot of places were just pouring things that a distributor had kind of advocated for them too. And it just became kind of homogenous. And and I still think a lot of places are like that today. You know, you go into a restaurant and you see the same 12 items, you know, not that they're all the same, but if you see the same 12 key components on every menu you go into, that can get a little boring. So I don't understand why everyone who doesn't walk into a restaurant, the same six to 10 grapes on a list, on a glass pour list is not bored by that. There's thousands of grapes out there. Why do we have to always have a Chardonnay, a Cab, a Pinot Noir, a Sauvignon Blanc? Why do you always have to have a glass pours surrounded by that? And so, you know, at 1215, it was my first kind of way to kind of express myself and my palate. And I was starting to pour. I was just really interested in tasting everything new and, and tasting all these, not necessarily esoteric grapes, but just grapes that I didn't see on every list. And so I started compiling a list around that. And that kind of veers away from the traditional kind of practices of, of the court. Not that they only test you on the same 10 grapes, because they don't. They test you on many different international varieties. But, you know, their goal is not to test you on what a Barbera in California tastes like. You know, that's not, there's no typicity to that, to them. So, so that was one thing. And then Two, I'm very, I don't know if thankful is the right word. I'm very happy I went down that road to start because I get, I think it gave me a super solid, I know it gave me a very solid base and foundational knowledge that say I were to jump into just jump into wines that I saw on Instagram that I thought were cool without really knowing kind of the base knowledge of geography and climate and soil and, and where grapes originated. I, I, I know that there's not there would be a, a disconnect there. But at the same time, uh, studying, tasting for a purpose uh, really started to make me kind of fall out of love with wine, to be honest. It just became a, an analytical thing that I just looked at as this problem that I had to figure out or this, this puzzle that I had to figure out. And uh, the joy of just tasting and drinking wine started to wane for me as a result of, you know, just studying and putting in that time for that and only studying and drinking and tasting the same, you know, structured format. So got to that certified, passed it and uh, was, again, very happy that I did that and went down that road. Um, but I saw my path 
veering the other way, whereas it could be very classical and structured, or it could be atypical and try to kind of uh, put wine in front of people that uh, will be different and, uh, you know, provide a little bit of a moving out of their comfort zone. Yeah, you're the wine manager at 1215 Wine Bar and Coffee. You come up with the wine list and everything. Eventually, you move to the Phoenix Restaurant Group, where you're both the wine and beverage director, but also the restaurant manager, too, as well. Doing both of those, like, how did you balance it so you didn't get overwhelmed? Because they're two different components. One, it wasn't a huge staff or a huge restaurant. So that wasn't, I don't know, a big pull in one direction. It was kind of all built in to kind of how we structured it, how I structured it. I was kind of responsible for the beverages for the whole facility, which the Phoenix is a, an event space first and foremost, always has and always will be. So, you know, weddings and things like that, and just which is kind of a mundane, very boring aspect of it, of just uh, event wine buying and beverage buying. Because everybody wants the same stuff probably, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's there's no creativity. It's It's all cheap and... Yeah, just shitty wine because that's what the package is included in. So that was kind of soul sucking. To be honest, the restaurant wasn't busy. Uh, so we, the, I went there because the chef who was reopening the restaurant I had worked for, he was the chef at Enotech Amelia. He left there to pursue and open his own restaurant. He asked me to come and run that restaurant. I went and did that with him. It never ended up happening. His financial backing kind of fell out. So that's when I made my way and Joanna at 1215 kind of found me and we came together. And then when that chef, Jeremy Lures, was reopening this restaurant at the Phoenix, I, you know, I was like, all right, I, I want to see this through. My heart has always been in restaurants, always will be. Again, like I said earlier, I food and wine and food and beverage, I like equally. I just happen to spend more time in one, one side of that. Did Joanna reach out to you or did you reach out to her? Because you guys are partners on Pleasantry. Uh, so she reached out to me kind of in between that leaving Enotecamia to go work, to go run this restaurant that this chef was opening. And then it kind of fell through within a month of that. I just picked up a bartending job. Um, Joanna got connected to me through a wine rep. Uh, she was looking for you know the the buyer position. She had only recently opened twelve fifteen. It was just over a year old. Um, so she was looking for a buyer. Was connected to me through a wine rep, and then so I went and you know interviewed with Joanna. We quickly realized that we had probably hung out at some point five years earlier. Uh, she was good friends from high school and then college and after with uh, some of my best friend's older brother. So, and we all hung out at a period of our lives. So we had that connection, you know, we just, yeah, it was just an instant connection. It was just one of those people that, you know, you knew kind of right away that it was the right fit. So I went and went to 1215 and six months later, that's when I left to go uh, to the Phoenix. Six months from there, is when I left and went back to 1215. Up to that point, did you ever think about opening a restaurant of your own or your own wine bar or anything like that? Sure, but I don't think it was ever really a reality. You know, I think anyone, especially younger within the industry, 
who at least takes it somewhat seriously will tell you, I want to open up my own place, but you know, the realities of that and what that entails, namely, you know, financial, uh, is not a reality for most. So I, you know, while I was at the Phoenix, I, um, you know, kind of, I, I came to a crossroads really. Um, I very much was not agreeing and getting along with my boss. It was the first time in my, in my professional life that I was not kind of a quote unquote, yes, man. I wasn't just doing things because I was always as subordinate as I could be. You know, my boss tells me something to do my entire life. You know, jobs in a high school, college, my job, my boss tells me something, I'll do it. It was the first time that I'd ever really outwardly questioned it and kind of, I wouldn't say be insubordinate, but pushed back a lot because I had all these ideas that I thought were ways to improve or grow. And my boss was very old school and had done it a certain way for his entire professional career. So, and it just didn't mesh. We just didn't vibe. Uh, His personality, his tactics were very, very anti how I viewed things. And so, you know, I was very frustrated, very unhappy uh, within my job, within my life. It was the first time in my life that I ever remember walking into a job, like just being very unhappy. Joanna kind of, she and I maintained a great relationship. Obviously, if I went back and worked with her and together maintained a very good relationship, we were at a trade tasting and went to, went out for a drink after that trade tasting. She knew about my discontent within the job. And she expressed to me how she was having issues with who she had hired to replace me. And, you know, we kind of said, uh, within that time, Hey, what if we could figure out a way to come back and work together? What if we can make this work? You know, I always, I love restaurants, you know, I love 1215. I like everything that it is and will be and what it has given me the opportunity for. Um, but you know, I think I if I had to stay there, I would just become bored, not bored, just complacent and miss the food aspect of it and the merging of the two. So what if we put our efforts into, you know, and resources into trying to open a restaurant? Um, you know, and I think she was, uh, she liked the idea of it because it, within that, I would also come back on the 1215 to you know, run the wine program as we were fleshing out a restaurant and then also stay on after the restaurant would open to kind of oversee the wine program at 1215 still. So it was that we agreed to that, you know, I think, uh, and started the process of that. Um, honestly, I was, uh, it was at that time, it was, I think December of that year, which was probably December of 2014, the movie Whiplash came out and my now wife, girlfriend at the time were at, the theater and seeing it, it just very, very, very much spoke to me. Um, I remember in the theater kind of getting a little bit emotional at the scene, you know, when this star pupil is just, you know, just keeps going back at it, back at it. And just this asshole prick teacher uh, is just keeping on pushing him and, you know, just driving him further and further away from his love of drums, of music. And it wasn't until he leaves it and then he kind of strikes out on his own and finds this whole new love after leaving it behind. And it was because of this, you know, teacher, whatever. And I felt some, a lot of similarities to that in my life. And that uh, really gave me kind of the Joanna and I didn't have a firm agreement on anything when I left. I just 
left that, you know, put my notice in and said, all right, at the end of the year, I'm leaving this job. I think I have something I can do. It just wasn't solidified. So, uh, but I just needed to be done and needed to figure out, okay, am I going to work for someone or a group for the rest of my life, trying to run ideas up the ranks and maybe they work out, maybe they don't. Um, or am I going to try and work for me and, and see those ideas out in, in person, in reality? And take a chance. When you guys started figuring out like the concept for the restaurant, was Pleasantry the first and only idea kind of that you came up with? Or did you guys come up with other ideas first and just eventually narrowed it down to what it is today? So we had, uh, you know, obviously, first of all, it was going to be a wine centric restaurant. That was what we did. That's what kind of people knew us for as a growth out of 1215. So we knew it was going to be a wine centric restaurant. Once we started looking at spaces, I think we kind of decided that the space would dictate a little bit of the exact concept within that. Uh, and we narrowed it down to two spaces, really. One being where it is today and the other being um, a much larger space in a new development where we could say how much space we wanted. You know, there was this wide open space. We could say, all right, we want 2,000 square feet. We want 2,500 square feet. We can design everything within that. And that concept would have been more of, uh, and I'm so thankful we didn't do this, um, more of a uh, wine, not classroom setting, but a place where it would be a restaurant, but there would also be kind of an event space to do classes and workshops and things like that of, you know, educating the public on more wine things and just being more of a, uh, a wine educational hub, but with food and everything around that. So um, it wasn't until we found and decided on the space where it is now that it would be, you know, a very neighborhoody wine and food driven kind of spot. Since he's full of like older brick buildings, which is kind of the one that you guys are in too. And I remember Cincinnati has like all these different character buildings. Was there anything like super challenging with the construction of the restaurant like that you guys ran into or was it pretty much just like construction sucks <laughs> it'll eventually be worth it yeah both so we're in a historic building you know over the rhine has our neighborhood has the largest density of this italian renaissance of this italian at style architecture in the country and there's a, a historic board historical preservation board that anytime you want to renovate or do any changes to them, you have to run it by them. So, uh, yeah, so we had to, the space we're in most recently was a corner store and it had been vacant for over 13 years. So in, so in zoning, it was a mercantile, um, but we had to get that changed to restaurant bar. So we had to go in front of historic, show them all our drawings, talk to them about our, you know, ideas and concept. And then they voted on it. Members of the community can speak for or against it. One awesome neighbor spoke out against it pretty demonstrably. And it ended up being a pretty close vote. It was two to one um, that historic voted on. So we ended up, we're able to go through with it. And yeah, just anytime you're dealing with, I mean, the place was ripped down to the studs. There wasn't anything other than the walls that we could keep. So yeah, just doing all that, just your normal construction challenges and, and delays. Um, at the end of the day, the the exterior is still that awesome kind of style that fits in with the neighborhood and gives it its charm. And 
has some really nice arched windows on the east side of the building. So uh, until they put a really huge building next to us, there was really good sunlight, that natural light that would come through. But uh, yeah, I mean, uh, construction sucks in general. Just the process of it and the delays and everything and the hurry up and wait. With the guy who was trying to get it voted down, is he still in the area, still your neighbor? And what exactly was his logic if the place had been vacant for 13 years? I mean, well, there's there's a lot to be said about that. I don't know. I assume so. If he sold, he made a bunch of money on his investment, so good for him. His thing that he was speaking out against was he did not, it's honestly kind of comical to say it right now, he did not want a loud, raucous place to be in his neighborhood. That's exactly what I think of when I think of Pleasantry. It's just this loud, raucous restaurant. Exactly. We said to him, you know, sir, I think you have a fundamental misunderstanding of what we're trying to do here. We don't want to be there late at night either. You know, we're opening a restaurant, a wine bar slash restaurant, not to mention there is a 6,000, 7,000 square foot brewery that just opened a half block away from us. And then also all the development that has happened around us were the least of your concerns. I don't know. Some people just like to poo-poo development just to do it. I don't know why. How did uh, Chef Evan Hartman, you know, he's the opening chef there, there for a number of years. How did he wind up joining the restaurant? Did you work with him at the Phoenix for a bit? He was a sous chef there, I think. He was just a cook. Um, so he came on there as a cook. And that's where we, where I first met him. You know, we just kind of vibed. Um, we had a similar kind of view on just hospitality and restaurants. And, and you know, I took unofficial mental notes, you know, just he loved food and loved creating and, you know, spent his time outside of work reading and watching videos and watching whatever. And just really, that was what he loved. And he had talent. So that was all that. We enjoyed similar things kind of personally too. We both really love the NBA. So we would always talk about that. And yeah, so when it was time when Joanne and I wanted to find a chef, he was the first person that kind of came to my mind. So it was kind of a, it wasn't hard to convince Joanna. She kind of let me take the initial lead on that. And, you know, I talked with Evan and Evan was completely on board. So all three of us met and yeah, we just kind of hit the ground running, you know, a year before we opened and conceptualizing and just coming up with ideas. Yeah. I mean, you guys dealt with construction in the area, like you mentioned, for the first couple of years and two, three years, something like that. And still, yeah, I mean, over the Rhine is being developed, but it's, I think a, a decent amount of it's a little bit farther north now, right? Like Liberty Street area. Yeah. I mean, there's always new phases. Yeah. We're, I don't know. We're, there's always something around us. And, and I'm not, it's not we knew all the plans for our little pocket, which was one of the reasons we went there, you know, more development, more businesses, more residential around us is good. Um, just, you know, definitely for the first three years we were open, the road was our road was closed more often than it was open. How big of a challenge is that? Did that really affect business drastically for you guys? Or, or did people just come I'm sure it did. Yeah, especially during the day. We were still doing a lot of, or at least making an effort to do daytime services, lunches, breakfast, things like that um, during the week. And yeah, it really made it hard to get to us. And especially, you know, as a restaurant starting up and it was our first restaurant. So, you know, it, the easier it would be to get to us, the better. I think it definitely 
made it a challenge. I know it made it a challenge to get to us. The wine list kind of got all the accolades in the beginning. I think it was at the time, maybe the only natural wine program in the Midwest. Did that help get people to try the restaurant where maybe they wouldn't have been interested otherwise, or maybe have been hesitant because, oh, okay, it's a new restaurant. There's four other new restaurants in the city, whatever, but it's, but then you have that accolade where it's like, oh, they have this unique wine program. I like wine. Well, let's go check that place out. I think that the most people who came to see us early on outside of the people that we knew outside of the regulars that I had met through various places I had worked or friends and family or who knew us from 1215. I think most people that came, came because it was a new restaurant and just wanted to come to the new restaurant. I think especially in 2016, when we opened natural wine wasn't anything that people knew of and it wasn't anything that would mean anything resonate to a lot of people within Cincinnati within our community um and that was our challenge I guess but that's what we were taking on and we knew that and it was our job to kind of put it in front of people to uh, open their eyes to it about what is out there I was just kind of Coming back to your question, yes, I think mostly people just came because it was, you know, people want to come to the new restaurant. Like uh, two years later or so, 2018, you guys were opening uh, or getting ready to open and eventually did fast casual chicken restaurant, Money Chicken. What what made you guys decide to take on another venture when, you know, you have all the construction, like this is going good, but obviously, you know, like once the construction gets cleaned up a bit, it business should be better too. But you know, early years of restaurants can always be kind of finicky and depending on profit margins, all that stuff. So 2018, you know, two years in, you're like fast, casual chicken restaurant, let's go. Like what led to that? Um, the idea for it came more out of just a chicken dish that we opened with at Pleasantry. It was early on, it was something that kind of garnered the most eye-opening or the most unexpected comments from from guests who would have it you know being chicken you know generally chicken on a, a menu can a lot of times be the safe dish so then this was anything but so i think the flavors that were within it and how we kind of treated it uh really excited people so you know they kind of got our uh, minds rolling, you know, uh, well, what can, how can we make an extension of this? Um, and I think a lot of the thoughts were, you know, how do we do something within our industry, within a restaurant can be, that is easier, that has less moving parts um, and is replicable and is less, you know, Evan and I specific, something that we can, or Evan and I intensive, something that we can, uh, you know, train and put the right people in place and can execute it the same way day in and day out. Those were kind of our main things. One, how do we do this product and, you know, responsibly sourced chicken, something that is such a, such a commodity in most, most instances and keep our same values and bring that to more people in a, in a fast casual environment. Looking back on the venture and knowing kind of what you know now and even taking in COVID and everything in consideration, would you have just operated Money Chicken as like a pop-up out of Pleasantry instead of a standalone location? Because it closed right before the pandemic, right? Yeah, yeah, January of 2019. January of 2020, sorry. That's interesting. I never thought of that. Yeah, we would have done any number of things differently to make it not 
turn out how it did. First of all, it's something that I still, I still believe in the concept. I still believe in the product. I think it was delicious. And I'm very proud that we were able to kind of, like I was saying, you know, make this product out of something that was from a farm as opposed to being a commodity and how it, and especially kind of the design of the place, I think. But I think too, you know, we did so many things wrong or that I would do differently. We made a very, very critical hiring error right at the beginning. We, you know, I think the space we chose was way too big. We put too much thought into the design element of it and therefore money into that when we thought it would be something that would be really appealing to people. You know, it's in the central business. It was in the central business district. So, you know, lunch was always going to be our thing. And we thought making this visually appealing, this visually inspiring place uh, would attract people. And I think what we learned was, you know, for a lunch break type thing, people just want good food and to get in and out. So that was maybe a little bit overthought. I think we were probably a little, maybe a block too far away from the real prime thing parts of the central business district. Yeah. I mean, I think we made a number, number of critical thought errors um, and execution errors for sure. But at the same time, I learned a whole hell of a lot about humility and humbling myself and how to take rejection and failure. Uh, you know, I, I think I learned so much from it. Um, obviously not at all how I would have expected it or thought it would go and not I would much rather take it being a super successful place and not have learned those things and learned other things from it. But uh, I definitely can have taken a lot from that for sure. When COVID happens, you know, lockdown happens, what was kind of your approach to it all uh, with pleasantry and everything? I mean, I know like, I think it was like the second or third day you guys started making meals for frontline workers, like right away. I think you did like 200 meals a day for like nine different hospitals or something like that. How did we make COVID work? I don't know. Uh, so, you know, Sunday, whatever that was, March 12th, something like that, when DeWine told us we couldn't operate as we had been operating anymore, uh, we thought, all right, what do we what do? we do? And, you know, we were allowed to do takeout. So the next day we were going to be open. We're always closed on Mondays. So we opened on Tuesday. All right, let's, we're just going to do takeout. Let's see what we have in house. Let's make a takeout menu based off that. And, and we'll go. And uh, there was so much, obviously, uncertainty about how long this virus would be here, how much we would be affected by it, how long we would be forced to be shut down, um, how long it would take to, quote unquote, flatten the curve that all the experts were telling us we had to do. And we always approached it of, you know, we did not this was nothing of our creation. We didn't create this virus. We didn't say we had to be takeout only. Any situation we were in then was not something that we controlled. We did not put ourselves in that situation. But what we controlled is everything we did after that. Um, we were in total control of that. And we just always had this thought of, let's just keep doing things, you know, we have to keep going. We don't, we are not in this position where we can just shut it down. Um, the restaurant was not in that position and just wait, sit back and wait. And we had people that we employed that we liked employing and liked keeping a job, tried to do as much as we could. So we did take out and take out from that first night it was very successful. That night is when Joanna Kirkendall, my partner, she, you know, called me and kind of had the idea of, Hey, what if, what it came from was her, one of her and her husband's good friends, who's a pediatrician. Her husband is also a pediatrician uh, at this 
doctor called her from Children's Hospital and said, hey, tomorrow is your Wednesday steak frites. I want to buy some meals for some people on my on my team. Can I do that? Sure, absolutely. Um, and that kind of a light bulb clicked for her and said, what if we open this up to our community, to our regulars, to our people, to the city, to whoever, to buy a meal from us, and we will then prepare the meal and drop it off to frontline workers, to healthcare workers. How we were going to do it, uh, what we were going to do, we weren't really sure of. We were just said, hey, let's, she had this idea to put this on our website, announce it, and we'll see where it goes. And so, yeah, that second day of doing takeout, second day of the forced shutdown, we put it up there, made a post, and we woke up the next morning and there was, I don't know, over a hundred something meals sold. So an event, you know, we started doing those and it just really took off and became this whole thing, this whole other entity um, to where, you know, companies were buying and, you know, people were making mass purchases of these meals. And, you know, it was Evan, it became his full-time thing. We had to bring on a partner, LA Bakery to do, we were doing morning, afternoon and evening deliveries. 200 to 250 meals each time. So 600 to 750 meals per day we were delivering. We were cooking them. Evan solely was making these meals, packaging them. And it was myself or Joanna, or, you know, we brought somebody back on staff that we had before to just deliver these meals. So yeah. And at the end, I don't know, we did that for about three months and that we ended up selling over 12,000 of those meals that people purchased from us. Um, so that coupled with our takeout that was, you know, very successful from day one, really, really kept us going, really, really um, made things go for us during COVID. And then when we were allowed to, and it was just very inspiring. It was really cool to see that it was something that the community could rally around and everybody felt good about doing it. And then you know, once we were able to open up for patio outdoor dining, we decided to do that and did it for a week. Um, our patio is not covered. So one night we had basically we started to rain and we couldn't seat anyone. And at the time, you know, we weren't seating inside. And so it was just one of those very quickly realized this can't be a viable thing because we spent all day prepping this menu. We paid all this labor all day. And then we go and we have next to nothing in sales. It's a, it's a losing proposition. So stopped that um, and really came to the conclusion of what can we do with the least amount of dollar labor input to still maintain some revenue. So that is when uh, I kind of came up with the idea for the retail element of it. So kind of converted the dining room into a makeshift retail shop. And then we started doing takeout one night a week, just a burger night on Thursdays. And then Fridays and Saturdays, Evan would write, handwrite a menu and I would serve and bartend and do all that. And it was he and I from with bringing in one person to help, um, just be an extra set of hands from July, June through November. And we just kind of handled it as our little two man crew, just because the same type of thing, you know, we we a, weren't in the position at the time to just shut it down. B, there was a demand for what we were doing. C, well, I don't know what I would have done. What am I? I'm not trying to sit at home and do nothing for a long time. You know that uh, I'm just not capable of that. Um, so we made it work. You know, and then in the winter we ended up just doing takeout, another takeout, but weekends we would do takeout pre 
mostly 90% of the way cooked meal kits um, that people would order throughout the week. And then they would pick up on Fridays and Saturdays and continued the, the retail aspect of that as well through uh, through March of this year. So kind of had four different iterations of things we did during the intense kind of mandates of COVID. Do you know why your takeout program was so successful? Because like there's so many other restaurants that tried it and they did it for two, three weeks and they're like, this doesn't work profit margins wise, but you're kind of one of the few that your takeout program pretty much like thrived. I have strongly educated guesses of being there and seeing the people who were getting our takeout and what they would say, say 100% with certainty, but pleasantry has always existed as this neighborhood spot. What we set out to do was be a place that people could go and get really good food, really good and thoughtful food and beverage in a space that was very comfortable and approachable. We're very casual, but we're very intentional. And I think I know as a result of that, just in the restaurant, more days than it's been open than not, people just appreciated that. And the amount of regulars that we have created, be it neighborhood people, our neighborhood people, be it people who visit us once a month, twice a month, six times a year, it meant something to them to be able to have that spot. You know, we are by no means, you know, the busiest restaurant or the most financially successful restaurant by any means. But I think what we have done is created a sense of uh, just 50-50. These guests are just a part of the restaurant as, as we are a part of the restaurant. Um, and that became a place that they wanted to support. Not only that, but it still tasted good. It still tasted like pleasantry. It, it wasn't a compromised product something that we wanted people to support as we weren't a charity. You know, we never compromised on what we were doing or our integrity. We still were able to do in a lot of ways, you know, pleasantry, especially the food as amazing as it is and has always been. It's kind of the, the restaurant of, not about nothing. It's not like that, but it, we didn't have one lane that we had to stay in. We didn't have to do Italian. We didn't, we don't have to do Spanish or pizza or, tacos you know we we just people ask what kind of food do you serve i say we serve good food that is what we do so we were never confined so we can always ebb and flow within that as long as we stay true to our sourcing and our and our flavors and and how we go about things we can adapt and i think because there were some really dark and troubling months and years for us things weren't always successful so we had that kind of anti-fragility that we had built up of We've had our backs to the wall before, so we know what that's like, and we know how to keep going and persevering and rethinking things. We've we've had to change our operations before and change some certain structures that we did. Um, it's what we signed up for, you know, as as being partners, as being owners, whatever you want to call it. We sign up for the bad as much as we do the good, and the the criticism as much as we do the praise. It's all part of the gig, so. Being able to be flexible and to be able to bend and not break had a lot to do with that as well. Was there any sort of wine that you were able to get because of COVID with different wineries and everything? You know, normally they sell to restaurants. Those restaurants aren't open, so they had allocations for different parts of the country and stuff. But even though, you know, that's the wine industry in general, but you're kind of in a narrower lane of that with the natural wine, did that kind of happen for you? Was there anything that you normally couldn't get that you were surprised to get or? 
Um, not so much as new stuff, at least not during 2020. I mean, especially the first couple of months, I was buying more wine than I ever had. You know, some of the big players in the city were not operating and were not selling any wine. So I felt that it was kind of part of, again, what I signed up for to be able to, you know, distributors and importers are as much in it, you know, they're partners as well in this whole ecosystem of wine in the state. So if they're not having people buy, they won't bring in more wine or, you know, bring in what they've agreed to purchase in the future, you know? So there wasn't necessarily new stuff other than just new stuff that had already been in the works that were coming in. Um, But I mean, I was definitely certain things I was definitely allowed to buy more of as far as allocated wines. That's for sure. Um, Because yeah, just because there weren't as many people buying wine and there was still, I still had a big demand for it. Earlier this year, Evan uh, moved on to 20 Bricks. Who's running the kitchen now? Is it just a collaboration of everybody? No. So yeah, Evan, uh, honestly, uh, it was a conversation he, Joanna, and I had uh, leading up to before the pandemic. Uh, It was just something that I think kind of the daily grind of restaurants and working nights and, you know, just the type of commitment and way he always approached it. It didn't allow for much home time. And, you know, he and his wife wanted to start a family and wanted to have a little bit more regularity to their schedules. Uh, And it was, you know, it had been five, four and a half years, and it just wasn't, you know, doing the same things for him as it had, um, which was was fine. Um, And then he stayed on through the pandemic just because, you know, what was he going to go look for a job during then? And I know he stood behind what we were doing and what we were able to do during that. Yes, he he left. Uh, initially, he left to go teach cooking classes at Sir Latab, and he did that for a little while. And then uh, he's now at 20 Bricks, which is where he started his culinary career and kind of got back into kitchens. Um, but still, you know, a very good friend, and I talk with him regularly. Uh, but who is now uh, running our kitchen, running the back of the house, uh, his name's Tyler Stemmer. He was our sous chef under Evan, and he uh, he's been with us he came on board towards the end of our first year being open. So he's been there about four and a half years, uh, probably five years now. Um, so he has taken the reins and really, really ran with it and excelled. So I think a few weeks ago, you announced you're going to be opening up a standalone wine shop, Iris Reed, which is named after your kids. Yeah. My kids' middle names. What's your overall concept and vision for it? I think anyone who has been in wine or has sold wine has this romantic idea of having a wine shop and being able to connect to more people in that type of setting in a retail type of setting. Um, and so it's been a thought of mine for several years, um, you know, ups and downs as far as looking at spaces and then COVID happening or, you know, finding a space, but couldn't agree to the right terms or deals. Um, timing wasn't right. Um, so finally found this space and everything about the space in the neighborhood is what I envision uh, an, an ideal wine shop to be. So, you know, like, yes, it's a natural wine shop. You know, that's something that is a, is a non-starter for me. When I think of wine, I think of natural wine. So it's just something that I uh, believe in. It's what I enjoy drinking. Um, and it's what, you know, we, we, people have come to kind of know, know me and us for. Um, 
and just to expand my footprint to be able to sell more of these wines, you know, to be able to continue to share uh, the story and to be the steward of of these wines of these people, um, you know, who are small time and you know not not doing it out of you know other anything other than a belief in in the product and the land and kind of the the long time you know old school way of doing it, I guess, for lack of a better term. What exactly is natural wine? I, I think people might have mixed definitions of it. You know, I think the quick definition is wine organically grown and minimally processed, but there's more to it than that, right? I don't know. Elevator pitch, wine, how how wine was made before technology became involved, uh, how wine was made before, you know, commercialization, before things like that. Yeah, no, you know, clean farming, clean winemaking. Um you know, a lot of people will say, oh, so like organic. And I'll say, well, it's a lot more than that. You can have uh, a wine that says made with organic grapes, and then it can be manipulated to shit within the winery. You can add, I mean, Google permitted wine additives. There's hundreds of them and really disgusting things. And, you know, depending on who you are, or what you're drinking, it can be uh, you're creating kind of this Frankenstein product that is more akin to Coca-Cola than it is an agricultural product, which is what wine is. You know, it's from grapes that are crushed and fermented. Um, you know, natural wine is not a new thing by any means. It's actually very, very old, but it's kind of man that has intervened and kind of made it a rarity, which to me is a little, a little sad. Uh, yeah, just wine made with organic grapes, uh, you know, minimal intervention in the winemaking process, you know, uh, little to no sulfur added. And if so, just at bottling. Pesticides, no herbicides, right? Correct. You know, farmed by hand, picked by hand. Yeah. Kind of made by people as opposed to kind of in a lab or in a, in a production facility. Yeah. I just, I think people, like if you grab somebody off the street and told them like, you know, this is natural wine, I think there's a good percentage that are like, oh, it's some guy that grew grapes in his backyard or something like that. You know what I mean? But really it's just, it's the original process of how wine was made before seventies or so when kind of technology really started coming into it. You know, how big of a difference is it constructing a natural wine list versus just any sort of kind of wine list? Like, you know, maybe you don't have some of the bigger name selections because they do those things, but is there a big difference between the two or is it pretty? Just supply is the, the, the biggest thing. You know, there's of the wines that are commercially available, 95, 98% of them are not natural wines. So it's like the pool to select from is a lot smaller. Um, so it requires some more uh, effort, but also, you know, knowing exactly how the wines are made and what's, what's in it and what's not in it, um, is, is part of the process. Um, you know, especially in a market like Cincinnati, um, you know, when I first created this list, it was, it was a definite, you know, 2016, it was, it was a challenge to make a full complete list, something that I would say was a complete list with just natural producers on there, um, to where now there is more and more wine and importers and distributors coming into the market than ever before. And for the first time that I've been doing this, you know, that uh, I have kind of an abundance of things and there's, uh, you know, a lot of options um, within, within the natural world, which is awesome because there's, you know, partners, distributors that have allowed that to happen. And, 
uh, you know, somebody's buying it. Somebody, people are, some people are enjoying it or else it wouldn't continue to have more things come into the market, more wines come into the market. So like to think that, you know, we had a little bit to do with that and have helped create the culture around that and you know, the beliefs in it as well for other people and places to be able to, to sell it and get behind it. You know, some could say like natural wines having this moment and upward trajectory and popularity, but it, in theory, it's probably still going to keep going upward and become more and more popular. Is there a reason why like it kind of caught on? You know, this was happening, you know, before the pandemic. One, it's a little counterculture. You know, it's anti-stodgy wine, what a lot of people think of as wine and why a lot of people think wine is unapproachable because it's kind of anti these palatial estates and this buttoned up kind of uh, image that you have of these Burgundian houses or these really these chateaus in Bordeaux or the Napa you know, domains of the world. So I think one, that's a big part of it. Two, I think the people who are behind it are more, and this more has to do with kind of a marketing side of it are just more, are, are younger and more savvy with uh, social media and things and getting it out there in front of people who can help it grow. You know, there's any sort of, any number of data you can collect from polls saying that millennials and Gen Z are drinking more wine than any generation has at that age before. And I think what they want is something that is, you know, again, the kind of that anti maybe what their parents drank or what they always thought of was, was wine, you know, and, and also just the fact of what it is in there in the bottle versus what it isn't. Um, uh, I think that has something to do with it. You know, I think a a lot of natural wines too are, are more marketable. They have fun labels and there's a more artist element to it as opposed to a more traditional kind of feel to it. Not all, definitely not all, but there's more there's more whimsy to it as far as the design and everything. At Pleasantry, does the wine get paired with the food or does the food get paired with the wine? Neither and both, I guess. You know, we don't, you know, I think our just style of both are both conducive to the other. You know, natural wines and in general are, are, I think, are more food friendly. You know, they're lower in alcohol. They're generally higher in acidity. Uh, they're just less, generally less extracted. So they play better off more, more food items. And then, you know, our style of food is just more kind of simple and just playing off of what we can get from a lot of what's in season right now and just unique flavors, but not overdoing it, not overburden of too much on a plate, you know, kind of just letting the ingredients speak. So I think they both work off of each other. Are you able to enjoy a dinner when you guys go out or do you compulsively check like the wine list to see what that place has? Yes, I can enjoy dinner going out. A, I don't go out to eat a lot. Just my wife is very much, she like food and drinks and going out doesn't move her. Um, It's not it's just not what you know gets her going so you know our and we also have two young kids so going out is kind of uh few and far between but i don't know still even you know at least in cincinnati there's not a ton a ton of places that i go to that i want to drink wine at generally speaking i will go to places that have wine that i want to drink or i'll just end up drinking beer or a cocktail or something I just think that drink, you know, a lot of places that have natural wines as a focus of their restaurant 
tend to have food that is also exciting to me as well. Um, you know, here and also outside of areas, you know, if I'm going, if I'm traveling or going, you know, even on like a food and food eating and drinking trip, um, I will look for or follow places that have good wine programs in my mind. And the food tends to follow with that excitement as well. Not always, but generally. You are from Cincinnati, you know, born and raised essentially. Why is Cincinnati so overlooked in like the hierarchy of food cities? Everybody kind of doesn't really pay attention to what Cincinnati's doing. I feel like at least in Ohio, like here in Columbus, like everybody's like, oh, Columbus is, you know, the best food city in the state and everything. And there's some other people that are in my camp where it's, it's really, I really think Cincinnati probably overall has a better food scene than Columbus does here. But Cincinnati just kind of gets overlooked, kind of lost in the shuffle for some reason. But when you look at it, it's a lot of solely owned restaurants. You know, there's not a whole lot of restaurant groups there. there. There's a couple, you know, every city has those, but a lot of the restaurants and a lot of the really good restaurants are either chef driven or chef owned or sommelier owned stuff like that so why do you think you guys have been overlooked kind of for all these years yeah that's a great question that comes up not a lot but i don't personally think there's any question that cincinnati is the you know the most exciting food scene within the state i think cleveland got some notoriety you know in the early aughts you know with kind of celebrity chefs like Michael Simon and Jonathan Sawyer. Um, so got some kind of acclaim through that. I don't know. Like, I agree with you. I've been to both Columbus and Cleveland and, you know, there are definitely people doing cool things in, in, in both cities. Um, I just think that, you know, as far as both from a, a wine side and driving excitement in wine and food, I don't, I don't really think we have competition within that. I, like you were saying, I just think there are more kind of of those style of restaurants that are kind of chef or, you know, beverage driven thought people versus groups or, or things on that side. So um, I've had people from Columbus tell me that as well, but uh, I don't know. I, I guess I'm, I'm sure I'm biased, but, you know, but I also think at the same time, we Cincinnati has a lot of ways to go as far as making in particular the wine program stand up to the food but um but yeah I, I think the city has grown a whole 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 heck of a lot since I've you know started in restaurants 15 years ago has it changed much since you've been involved in restaurants and even since like you've owned pleasantry or is it still feel kind of about the same yeah, no, it's definitely changed. I think, you know, there's more and more places opening. There's obviously places closing as well. Um, but uh, yeah, I just think it's a, a continual evolution. Uh, uh, just there's always, there seems to be more and more people native moving home, moving back here that have been on the coasts or things like that, or in other cities that are maybe more exciting or more uh more recognizable um, that people do continue to do good things and, and more and exciting things within that. Where do you think the food scene in Cincinnati is headed for the next five, 10 years, this upcoming decade here? I think it'll be a balance of more groups that continue to, to expand and grow and groups that operate as major companies or groups that are kind of chef driven, but have multiple concepts. And then, you know, also just individual, truly independent, single, single entity restaurants as well. 
but I think we have a nice base of young or young-ish, uh, knowing I am not considered young anymore, um, of uh, like-minded people that have a not necessarily a common goal or a common idea of what a restaurant is, but have a common belief on how food and hospitality and experiences should be cultivated and doing it around that. What's next for Pleasantry and, and what's next for you professionally, aside from obviously opening the wine bar in, in the coming months once construction's done and everything? So yeah, obviously that's at the forefront of my um, at least kind of growth is the wine shop, Iris Reed. Um, so I'll be kind of working on that over the next couple months. Next for Pleasantry, Pleasantry's doing really, really well right now. We just had our busiest month ever. And that's with less service periods than we've ever done. Uh, so yeah, just to continue to kind of grow it, keep honing in on what we do and what we have done and, and figuring out, continue to figure out. It's a constant of what works, what doesn't work, what needs tweaking, what doesn't need tweaking. You know, I, for the first time, have a fully focused full-time front of house manager that has allowed me to kind of more work on the restaurant than in the restaurant for the most part, um, which is, is going really well and has allowed me to kind of, you know, just when you're constantly grinding day in and day out in the restaurant and you, you can form a blind spot to certain things and just continue to do things because that's how you've always done it. Um, honestly, that's why I think this is maybe not the most, uh, I don't know, accepted thing, but I think 2020 was a really great year, to be perfectly honest with you, um, both personally and professionally. I was able to look at the restaurant from, you know, a bird's eye view. We had a forced stop of doing what we were doing at a time when the restaurant was doing the best it ever had done. Um, but we worked really hard to get it to that point. And, you know, I was also working at that time more than I ever had in the restaurant, save for the first two years it was open. But I was also able to be home a lot more because for the majority of 2020, it was just me and our chef. So it put things into a new perspective on that. And again, we bobbed and weaved and were able to do really well during the pandemic. Um, you know, obviously sales and all that, but all the helicopter payments from the government obviously helped. What, whether that was the most necessary thing, I that's for another conversation, but yeah, it was a total growth year for me and for us. So, so I think it, it was really good. So just to continue to take happened then and, and made us realize, and just to continue to grow those. And obviously we have uh, a new chef and just to continue to work with him and watch him fly, which has been really, really, really rewarding to see. And yeah, just to continue to, to grow that, you know, Specifically, we've always done collaborations with other chefs from both in town and out of town. We're going to start doing those again, you know, keep doing events like we've been known to do. So just a couple of things down, down the pike that uh, we're working on as well. This next question comes from Chef Casey Goff. She runs a pop-up restaurant out in San Diego called Wolf and Woman. She's a previous guest on the podcast. Uh, she left behind a question. Where do you think the industry will wind up? in the next two years? Kind of gets to what I touched on a little bit in that last point. Um, I mean, there's still free money out there. There's still money being given to restaurants and bars that, again, we're operating at full capacity. We're operating just as we did before the pandemic, yet we're getting money gifted to us. So I see a very bright 
future for the industry if you are able to accept it for what it is. Uh, labor is a very big challenge right now. That is very clear in our industry, but also we're not unique in that. It's in a lot of industries. So I think being taking on the victim mentality of woe is me, nobody, I can't hire anyone when I do, they want too much money or et cetera, et cetera. Well, again, that's what you're faced with. So figure out a way to make what you want to do work with what you have. You know, if you can't operate how you used to operate, that's fine. Pare it down, do something to where you can make it work or don't or, or throw in the towel and find something else to do. But I think I think a lot of the industry has gotten to a point of, I think people feel sorry for themselves as far as, you know, please be courteous to our staff. We're understaffed. We're all working really hard. If you're, we're not giving you the same service that we always have that you've grown accustomed to, just know that we're trying. We apologize. And please tip more than you ever have before. I, I just don't subscribe to that thought. I don't think that's a healthy way of thinking. If you can't offer the service you want to offer, then you have to change something. You know, if you're, and that's not, you know, that's just the reality of how it is. You know, it's not, it's not anything that we did or, or maybe we did for, because of long established expectations within the industry. I don't know. I just don't think that it's, I don't feel right asking for forgiveness for bad service or long wait times or anything related to a bad experience when it is under our, in our control. It's in our control. Nobody is saying you have to open. Nobody is saying you have to be open the same way you were in the past. It's all totally up to you. So if you're going to be open and you're going to provide a service, you should provide that service. So I, where the industry is going, I think when I read of people opening 4,000, 5,000 square foot restaurants right now, I am I want nothing to do with that. I want something so far removed from that because of that. I know the reality of what it is. And hiring 50 people sounds miserable to me right now. So I think at least for the next two years, maybe the types of endeavors that people undertake might change. Although at least in Cincinnati, I'm seeing people commit to these really big spaces and it just, I want nothing to do with that. I, I by no means have everything figured out and have never operated a place like that. So maybe there's tricks to, to hiring, but I know what the climate is and it's, that sounds like no fun to me. So maybe you'll see less kind of big places and more small places, but maybe not, you know, <laughs> I don't know, but I do know if, you stay true to what you want to do. And maybe it's not the same exact way as you wanted to do it when you set out doing it, but we can still push ourselves within the industry to get better. Immediately, what you can expect in the industry, prices are going up because if I'm paying more for a product, the consumer is going to pay more for a product. You know, That's what inflation is. And that's what happens when supply chains are disrupted. So expect to see higher price prices on most items in particular, uh, proteins and things like that. So that's a very specific thing, but anybody who goes grocery shopping should realize that. What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? can be anything. But if you could change one thing that you did over the last 18 months, what would it be? A few more questions for you. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast, so compare and contrast. Uh, you're kind of getting a, a mixed dose because you're a restaurant owner and a sommelier. So who is the biggest influence on your career thus far, would you say? 
Uh, Joanna, for sure. I mean, there's several people that I think have kind of made me who I am today. But as far as my career, specifically Joanna. What is your desert island wine? I would say uh, Ruth Lewandowski faints. It's delicious. It's something that I think goes with a multitude of things. It's very, very thirst quenching. So it would be nice on a desert island. And it's also, uh, I go out and work with him, Evan, the producer, Evan Lewandowski, every year for Harvest. So I have a, a personal connection to the land and that wine as well. What's the one thing in the restaurant that if it breaks, you're calling someone to come fix it? You're not taking it on yourself. The oven. Yeah, we just did that last week. Can't run a restaurant without an oven. And I am by no means handy. So, Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. Somebody gets uh, delayed at the, the Cincinnati airport there, stuck overnight, reaches out to you. You guys are closed that night. Like, hey, where should I go? You point them to this direction. Um, I would say it's not that close to the airport, but there's a place called 99 Restaurant in uh, north of the city. And it's in an area called Sharonville. Uh, it's a Szechuan restaurant that I crave, 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 crave. It's delicious. Um, it's in a strip mall in an old, in a former event space. So they do karaoke and stuff. It can get kind of wild, but it's delicious. It's, it's food I crave for sure. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place you haven't been, want to go to. Bucket list, uh, even though I've been, but not as an adult, I'd say Paris, as far as uh, just their natural wine scene, their natural wine bars. Bucket list restaurant. Fortunate that I've been to a lot of places that I want, that I admire and want to go to. Bucket list restaurant. Uh, I've never been and. It's very attain attainable, so I'm sure I will go at one point. A uh, restaurant called Rustic Canyon in California. Just very, very, very. Every time I see them post a new a new food item, I, I think it sounds both delicious. It's very thoughtful and it's very visually appealing. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you were working? I didn't see it, and I was just told about it. But it was two weeks ago while I was out in California. Um, one of our servers asked the table, you know, after she took their order, said, and just, is there any allergies that I should, that we should be aware of? And uh, a woman said, I can't tell you that that's a HIPAA violation. Um, and I, I said, I was like, look, I've been doing this for 15 years. I, that's, that's the first I've ever heard that. I, I, I understand now why it's in the forefront, but I don't understand why she said that. That was a new one for me. Let's see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's what's coming to mind. It's not really that crazy. It was just kind of anytime I hear something or see something new or for the first time, I'm kind of surprised because I've been doing it for a while. So that was that was one of them. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything fast food or is there anything in like the grocery store? You know, this item's down that aisle. You try and avoid it because, you know, it's super unhealthy for you, but you just can't resist kind of thing guilty pleasure i eat a lot of nut butters so if there's a jar or a container of a nut butter i take multiple spoonfuls of it that is something um cured meats are probably at the end of the day my favorite food so i'm i'm liable to eat a whole chub of a salami if, if i'm left to my own devices so those two things come to mind one of the following, so these are like 10 wine documentaries movies that i was kind of able to come up with so if somebody's kind of you can use whatever criteria you want, whether it's the most influential or most entertaining, or if it's somebody that was going to get into wine, you'd recommend watching this. 
So you got the three psalms, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, uh, Sour Grapes, Decanted, Blood into Wine, and Bottle Shock, A Good Year, Uncorked, or Sideways. Mm. Uh, full transparency, I have seen two of those, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. I, I think I've seen, I've seen Sideways. I saw Sideways when I was in college. Sour Grapes is the one with uh, Rudy, who is doing all the fake wine. Yes, I, I've read his or this book about him and know the story very well. Yeah, I think that's probably the most widely interesting, you know, not just for wine people, just, I mean, people like true crime type stuff. And, you know, in a way that's kind of a heist movie as well, or at least a caper. I think some, as much as I kind of got sick, when it first came out, I was full head, like full steam ahead. This is what I was going to do. But then it just gradually became... Oh, are you a Psalm? Oh, have you seen the documentary? And that's what everyone said. And it's, yeah, but there's a whole world outside of that. Those are a very, very small percentage of people in the wine world and a very, very small percentage of those who get to this, this level. I think it's interesting. I think it's, you know, fascinating that the level of commitment it takes for sure. Wine recommendations. So got four categories. So $20 and under, $50 and under, under $100. And then no limit over a hundred dollars. What would you recommend to people? Um, under twenty or right at twenty, I guess. Under twenty, there are some wines from this importer, Zev Rovin. Uh, Latet is the name of the producer. They're from southern France. There's a, a white and a red, and there's actually an orange as well. And they come in under twenty retail. Uh, very delicious, very clean wines, well made. We're pouring the red by the glass at Pleasantry right now. I would recommend those. What was the next one? Under 50. Uh, so I guess a little caveat on this. Ask me to recommend. I get asked, you know, recommendations, whatever. Often, you know, 25 to 35. I could name you. I could go on and on and on and on forever of recommendations. Um, I think it's just kind of what you're of, of great wines, of wines that I would be more than happy drinking every day for the rest of my life if I only had to drink those wines. Something you'd recommend to the novice or average wine drinker, somebody who doesn't drink wine all the time, but drinks here, there, you know, a little bit more than just holidays and special occasions. All right. Under 50, one of my all-time favorite wines, we'll say uh, Justin Dutrev uh, Le Boulande, which is a, a Beaujolais uh, made by this, one of my favorite, most exciting producers in Beaujolais. Under 100. Under 100? Shit. Pretty much everyone I drink. Um, under 100, let's say most champagnes are under 100, so you could go that route. But let's do Hervé Suha, his Syrah. And that's well, well, well under 100. It's actually under 50. Over 100, no limit. I mean, it's tough not to say Alamon Cornas, another Syrah, um, which is retails in the 150 to 175 range. Alamon Cornas is benchmark Syrah. It's natural. It's zero zero, and it's also wine that he's been doing it that way for thirty years, forty years. So that's what I would say. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Uh, not everybody is. Uh, if you were, is there a moment, episode, scene that stands out to you about him? Or if you weren't, is there another kind of culinary personality that you know, whether it's Emerald or or something like that, that uh, you kind of gravitated towards, you know, when you were getting started in the industry and coming up? Sure. I really, really like and appreciate Bourdain. You know, I think reading Kitchen Confidential, 
while I was in the process of deciding that this is what I wanted to do for my whole life was really influential. Um, I watched a lot more of his Not No Reservations, the other show he did. There's a Cook's Tour or Parts Unknown? Parts Unknown. Somebody, I think everyone I kind of read and and listened to, things like that, um, all had a, had a part in kind of molding me. So, I mean, I read you know, Bourdain, um, you know, Red. I have several, you know, different wine books. You know, Raj Parr's Secrets of Sommeliers was pretty pretty influential on me. Joe, uh, David Lynch and Joe Bastianich, who were kind of, Joe Bastianich had Babo and was partnered with Mario Batali. And when I first got into wine, it was in an Italian restaurant. So I a lot of, read a lot of their Italian wine books, things like that. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug, everything. Myself uh, on Instagram at SouderDB, S-O-U-D-E-R, D as in dog, B as in boy. Um, not crazy, crazy active on that, um, but I am on there. Uh, the restaurant at Pleasantry, O-T-R, uh, website, PleasantryOTR.com. Um, and then Iris Reed, uh, website, though it's... A landing spot, not a website yet, irisreed.wine and at irisreed underscore wine. Um, those are those are my places where you can find me. And then uh, Pleasantry's open, what, Tuesday through? We are Wednesday through Sunday, Wednesday through Sunday dinner, 5 to 10, slightly 4.30 to 9 on Sundays. Yeah, and you can make reservations. You guys still doing to-go food? Uh, we do. Uh if it is very busy and, you know, during dining, we won't take it just because it'll kind of mess up uh, systems and everything. But yeah, we'll do takeout. Uh, yeah, reservations uh, are welcomed, are encouraged. Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, we've been fortunate enough to not only eat at the restaurant down there, but when you guys did a kind of a home and home dinner thing with a commune up here, we were able to, to eat at that too. So awesome restaurant i mean cincinnati is one of my favorite food cities so it's only 90 minutes away for us so we're always kind of able to get down there and visit places pretty frequently so it's always a lot of fun and the food's delicious there you know we haven't had the steak frites yet see that pop up every wednesday get a little jealous but one of these wednesdays uh we'll make it down there for that specifically cool you're welcome anytime appreciate you like i said taking some time uh coming on the podcast if you ever need anything from us feel free to reach out you know open invitation to return for everybody that comes on the podcast even if it's just for 15 minutes to plug a new menu that they're doing and the concept behind it or or whatever we want to just be able to help support everybody who kind of helps supports us by coming on the podcast and stuff too so stay in touch otherwise uh and we'll see you soon uh, i'm sure all right ray i appreciate it a big thanks again to Dan Souter for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day off to chat with me a little bit about natural wine and the food scene in Cincinnati, owning a restaurant. Um, so make sure to follow them on Instagram. Again, it's at Souter B. So it's at S-O-U-D-E-R-D-B. Also at Pleasantry O-T-R and at Iris Reed underscore wine. Um, it's going to be the wine shop name there, which is named after his kids. As he mentioned, we kind of talked about that at the end, but Make sure to check them out. Reservations, online ordering, they do to go food too as well if you're down in the Cincinnati area. Make sure to follow us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob. Check out the website, SpoonMob.com. Twitter, Facebook, but that's all kind of linked to the Instagram activity. 
Um, TikTok, we don't really do anything with. Um, but you can follow us there and maybe eventually we'll, we'll start doing videos or something for something. But uh, make sure to check out past episodes of Chefs and Guests come out every Thursday. Parts Now Known on Wednesdays. Uh, make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use, Spotify, Amazon, Apple, Stitcher, Google. We're on all of them. So give us a subscribe, a follow there. Same with Instagram, but appreciate everybody listening. We got a few more here, chefs and guest episodes. Basically, we'll run all the way through. We won't do one Thanksgiving, the week of Thanksgiving, and then we won't do one the week of Christmas or the week of New Year's. So just those three weeks, there won't be a chefs and guest episode, but there will be all the other weeks. And we got something special that we're kind of putting together too as well for December. So be on the lookout for that. But appreciate everybody listening. Continue to help spread the word. You can feel free to email us, spoonmob at yahoo.com or through the contact portal on the website. Questions, comments, feedback, anything like that. Recommendations too as well. Um, we got a few of those, so appreciate that. We'll talk to you guys next week.